Hello and welcome to the Late Discovered Club, the podcast that aims to give late discovered autistic women a voice. We bring you real life self-discovery stories and compassionate conversations with some truly incredible women. Created and hosted by me, psychotherapist Catherine Astor, whose own self-discovery came at 42. With the behind the scenes technical expertise coming from my eldest daughter, Katie Ava. This podcast really is a mum and daughter collaboration. Joining me today on episode seven is TC. She's a presenter, a writer and filmmaker known for her colourful style, youthful nature and passion for Caribbean heritage. Diagnosed autistic at 27, TC publicly revealed her diagnosis for the first time in her most recent documentary, Too Autistic for Black. Commissioned by Warner Brothers Discovery as part of the Black, British and Spoken series for Discovery Plus, the documentary explores what it's like to be black, British and marginalised in the autism discourse. In 2022, TC hosted at the Birmingham 2022 Festival as part of Commonwealth Games, presenting the Daily Cultural Programme. The festival saw over 750,000 visitors from all over the UK, the largest cultural programme to have accompanied a Commonwealth Games. Skilled both on and off screen, TC was nominated for the Royal Television Society's Breakthrough Off Screen Award for her stellar TV and digital concepts including a 45-episode short-form series, No Offence But, which was published weekly on BBC Three socials, and the six-part iPlayer dating intervention series, My Mate's a Bad Date. Outside of her TV career, TC can be found inspiring the next generation through professional speaking and digital content creation. She champions personal and professional development through her platform, Not Your Average Girl, which supports young women in the TV and digital sector. Her passion for inclusive storytelling continues in her written work. Age 16, she wrote and published her debut children's book, Snow Black, The Seven Rasters and other short stories, which was re-released in 2019. We really hope that you're enjoying listening to the podcast and what we've created so far. We are ad-free, we're not sponsored or funded by anybody. So if you enjoy what you're listening to and would like to show your support and you can, do consider buying us a coffee. The link is in the episode description. Um, So welcome to the show, TC. I really wanted to start today by exploring your autistic late discovery. So you were late diagnosed autistic at 27. And what was the trigger or turning point for you then that that made you start to explore a diagnosis at 27? Um, I think it was because I think it was about the third time I'd been signed up work. And this time it was for... I think it was for about six weeks this time. So the very first time I was signed off work for Anxiety States, it was 2014. I just started my first media job um, at the BBC. I was an apprentice, a radio apprentice. And I'd been signed off work for Anxiety States for a week. 
And then the second time that it happened, I was still working. I was working in TV and I was working in BBC Children's and I was signed off work for around the six to eight, eight week mark uh, for the similar, similar thing, burnout, they called it. And then the third time, it was an extended period of time. And I remember speaking to my GP and him saying to me at the time, you know, a lot of the symptoms that you're describing and stuff that we've had to sign you up and, and, and I think just kind of looking through my history, he sort of recommended that maybe I should go um, for a diagnosis. And at the time, I don't know whether I, to, whether I felt more offended or actually this could you could be onto something. I think offended in the sense of culturally coming from um, a Caribbean background, we don't usually like to put labels or diagnosis on stuff. And um, so it was that immediate, immediate, oh, do I have something to be embarrassed about because suddenly I've got a label mm-hmm. and it's something kind of my community may not accept? Or is it more relief that you can actually get help and support and, and a better understanding of who you are, some of your habits and behaviours and why you behave the way that you do? But anyway, going through that process was the best thing and do you, do you think TC do you think your GP was was aware of those cultural differences and cultural sensitivities in having that conversation no I don't I don't think my GP would have thought about that I think it's more just about look we've got your history and let's look at what the best possible way we can move forward in terms of getting you the right help and support so I actually felt very fortunate about that I think the whole cultural um, aspect of it was more was more personal, mm. but I don't think the GP would have considered that. And to be honest, it's kind of hard because they're just there to do their job in terms of making sure people get the right help and support they need. So it's like if if he didn't suggest that, would it would he have been in the wrong? And if he did suggest that. Would he have been in the rights? It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And there's so many barriers, isn't there, that, you know, even getting a GP to to see or to understand or to make a referral um, can be a barrier to so many people in the first place. So yeah. getting a GP in the first place who actually looked at your history and put all of this data together and presented that to you. I think that was really useful. I mean, to be honest, when I, when I was speaking to like other um just autistic people in general and them talking about the process of even getting a GP to support them through referral I realized how fortunate I was Mm. just to have the right person at the right time and in your film TC Too Autistic for Black which you released last year with Discovery Plus you talk about what it's like to be black and British autistic and marginalized and about what it feels like as a black autistic woman to be a minority within a minority well how did you find accessing that diagnosis and what were some of the barriers personally that you had to overcome obviously going through that process you're talking there about some of the internalized barriers that you're experiencing this so this wasn't necessarily about somebody else recognizing this and how did it feel because you did this you when you got your diagnosis you talked about this very publicly didn't you in in that film too autistic for black so how did you feel then after publicly revealing that about yourself I think I felt a mix of emotions 
it was tough because I'm and I mentioned this in the documentary I'm so used to sort of wearing or having this public facing perfectionism you know people usually see me with an infectious smile I'm usually drenched in lots of color and I usually have um an image or an ideal that people are used to seeing that people are used to hearing that people are used to accepting and even then it's tough because you know like I, I don't I would say I necessarily fit society's ideal of what um a Jamaican British woman is supposed to be I'm very outside the box in that sense and I'm, I've always been proud of that but to then add another label is quite dangerous uh, as a black woman in today's society especially with the industry that I work in um, I'm used to sort of being around um, white alpha males from middle class backgrounds and, and even that's it, that's tough to navigate so then adding uh, an autism label and um, that did concern me at first and I thought do you really want to kind of add another label to yourself and put yourself out there as a, an autistic woman but I thought to myself I'm tired of hiding who I really am and I kind of got to the stage of where I thought it's just pretty tough in terms of what people think but in terms of you going forward, you have to be brave about who you are. And if you're going to sort of like wear this mantra of just not giving two hecks about what people think, it has to also include being unashamed about being autistic. And I guess it's all about perception because it's not a dirty word mm. and it's not it's nothing to be ashamed of. It, it may be just be how um, society has stigmatized uh sort of you neurodivergent I wouldn't even call them disorders or call them conditions whether that's ADHD dyslexia Tourette syndrome autism they sort of like fall into this category right but if your perspective on that is that it's just something that is a part of me uh it's not a negative thing um and I've just chosen to see it as my superpower it's just something that is just a part of me I think once I came to the acceptance of that and everyone just kind of had to be okay with it. And if they're not, then tough. <laughs> yeah, which which brings me on to self-disclosure because obviously you've done this very openly and very publicly. And you've talked a bit there, haven't you, about the industry in which you work in and what you see around you and the lack of diversity and the lack of representation, particularly when it comes to seeing Black autistic people, Black autistic women on the TV and in the media. So... Where would you say you're at then on on your autistic self-discovery journey? And how have you found that self-disclosure? Firstly, I want to look at it through the lens of your workplace, you know, the world in which you work. And then secondly, within your own family and your friends, because, you know, autistic inclusion starts in our own families. And it's often our families and our communities can often be the place where we feel the most excluded. So I'm really interested, TC, to hear from your perspective and your experience what that self-disclosure has been like um, at work and secondly, within your family, community, your own world. My family have been very supportive. Um, my parents, bless them, and I've, I've said this before, they have been trying they tried to get me help when I was a lot younger. So I think I was three years old or maybe even earlier when my mum and dad tried to seek out from the medics because even they were aware that I was extremely sensitive, more than the average child. And 
in terms of like certain behaviors and not wanting to do finger painting or join on particular uh, childhood activities they were just generally concerned and and they did try and seek help for me a lot earlier so for them this diagnosis no matter how late it came made sense to them mm-hmm. they totally got it they were like yeah <laughs> everything everything we tried to get help for you before this makes sense and now and now we're finally happy that we weren't going crazy <laughs> back then so um so what happened what so what happened when you were 3 then how come how come you didn't you didn't get that diagnosis when you were younger what happened um just from my parents account they were just told that they just kept being told by the professionals that she's fine and it was difficult for them because they knew that i wasn't fine mm-hmm. uh, typically they knew that there were some of my behaviors that were different and they knew that sending me to school wasn't the right environment for me. And when I was, I think, well, between the ages of five to eight, I changed schools four times because teachers didn't know how to deal with me. And I was just constantly in trouble. And it was it was distressing for my parents because they were trying to find the right health. They were doing the best that they could. But if you're constantly being told, especially when you're uh, from the Caribbean community, that of that generation anyway when they're being told by the professionals that she's fine that's all they can accept and in terms of talking to their own friends their the extended family it's not something that we usually do mm. within our within our community so it, it it might have felt really lonely for them um to even step out and, and speak to family and friends and be like you know this is what's going on what do you think because they might have just received backlash or, you know, coming from a Christian community, I'll just pray it away, she'll be fine. There's all those different responses that they could have been faced with. So they just kind of learned to deal with it in the best way that they could. But what did that mean for you then growing up of knowing this difference? Did you know this difference within yourself growing up? Your your parents saw this. But was this labelled behaviour? Was this labelled bad behaviour going through school? I definitely felt it. When you're little, you don't know how to articulate sadness. You you feel it. You definitely feel it. I remember breaking a lot of stuff just because I was always angry. Um, and I felt I felt rage, a lot of rage when I was little. Even though I grew up in a really positive household and I have a lot of happy memories. Um, in terms of my behaviour, though, it often blew hot and cold. I was either really happy or I was having a meltdown and trying to whack my head off any type of hard surface because of all of this pent-up frustration of not really knowing what was going on or how to articulate how I was feeling but it was just emotional distress Mm. from anything I literally was triggered just from going on the bus I remember my sister saying that bringing me back from nursing school was an absolute nightmare because one minute I'd be fine and as soon as we got on the bus I would just absolutely mount down and just have this tantrum right from the start of the bus journey until we got home. And she said, as soon as you got off the bus, you were fine again, running up the road, happy. She just couldn't understand it. Um, So there's all of these behaviours that people noticed and all of these behaviours that I felt and recognised. But I guess at that age, it didn't make any difference to me. I think the only time that I was really aware and I felt really different was in school and making friends was particularly hard. Um, 
and there was a particular incident and I always say this to my mom like I remember what coat I was wearing I was wearing a yellow coat and I remember being five years old in the playground and it was just awful because no one wanted to play with me and I didn't understand why so I did notice when I was younger that there was a difference but I just didn't know what it was had no idea yeah so a lot of what you were experiencing were was quite internalized wasn't it people saw some of this behavior which was a response to that world that you're experiencing and how you're experiencing it so obviously within your family then you're you're talking about you know being understood affirmed validated what about then in the context of of work and the wider outside world how have you found that I would say in the corporate climate that we're at these these particular conversations are now becoming a lot more commonplace to talk about neurodiversity within the workplace, um, to talk about um, invisible disabilities or visible disabilities, um, conditions, etc. So I, I am I'm happy that more of these conversations are taking place and that different broadcasters and companies are making, um, making it an active commitment to include uh, these stories, these narratives, whether working in front of the camera, behind the camera, or in the actual editorial. Um, they're making active commitments to in- include narratives that that speak to and support autistic or neurodivergent people. Um, so I do feel that shift happening. Slowly but surely, I would say in terms of working in the industry, I think it just de- it depends on who you're working with. Um, as a freelance producer at the moment, I do work with different people, mainly people that I've known in the industry over time. It's not something that I disclose to people. Um, it's a strange one. I think if I was in a company, maybe three months or more, it's something that I probably would disclose and should disclose because it's going to affect my working environment. Even something as small as how many days I work in the office because since COVID, I have found it extremely difficult to work or function in an office environment again. And I remember just before COVID happened, speaking to my line manager and I said to them, would it be possible for me to do one day working from home? And even that was a massive fuss. Obviously, COVID came. We had to work from home anyway, which is great for me mm-hmm. because you know, obviously beyond, beyond the sickness and like... Um, what was happening at the time that was awful but in terms of what it meant for me working from home and being able to work in my own controlled space and not having to be around people it was like heaven yeah I thought this is like a dream come true for me and everyone kept being on the zoom calls like oh you know can't wait to get back to the office I thought I am I can wait I don't need to be around any of you like I'm fine I don't miss any of you I don't care to be to be touched, to be seen, to be spoken to, like being away from you is a dream. That's what was going through my head. Yeah. And, and for many people, COVID and the pandemic and lockdown, for many autistic people who I've spoken to would all describe the same thing, would all say um, that actually it, it enabled me to shut the world out. I created an environment in which I could thrive. And so you're freelance, you 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 are working um as a freelance producer through the pandemic, through working freelance, through working in organizations. What environments have you realized that really help you to thrive? What environments do you need to to work in? What helps? 
I often used to, in the office, um, change spaces a lot. So in the morning, if I'm working in a particular space, I will uh, move and change location. I usually thrive when I'm, I've got earphones in and I'm playing happy jazz music. And there was a time, that, I remember the first time, the first job that I got in TV and um, one of my line managers at the time banned people from using earphones because she said it was antisocial. And I thought, if only you knew that these earphones are helping me to function and actually get my work done. So it's little nuances like that, that people don't understand what it takes for sometimes autistic people just to simply be mm. and feel at peace. So for you to turn around and implement a rule that no one's allowed to use earphones, it was awful. I literally couldn't function and to hear everyone's chatter, people eating, people talking, it was a huge distraction. I couldn't function. I'm not the kind of person that likes to hear constant small talk around me. You have a sensitivity then to noise and auditory and you're describing that in an office environment is really hard then, isn't it? But a simple, a simple adaptation or somebody accommodating that adaptation of headphones makes all the difference. And that's the thing. I'm not asking people to stop talking. That would be ridiculous. But I always try and mitigate situations and circumstances that work for me and using earphones was one of those ways that I could control that particular um working environment so without that it was it was difficult um I don't really tend to eat lunch with other people um that was one of the things as well in in tv it's very much your network and I think I've had to try and create balance with that because I have some amazing people that I've met in the industry that I'm friends with. But I have this one friend and he was particularly um, very enthusiastic about inviting me to lunch. And it's just something that I'm not always comfortable doing. Sometimes I just like to be in my own space with my own thoughts and do my own thing. Um, the idea of people talking and eating sometimes makes me feel a bit ill. <laughs> I just I like, like to be away from that. I get that. Totally get that. So you talk very much and I you know, really want to explore this with you because you talk about obviously celebrating black autistic lives. And it's a really fundamental element in your storytelling in the work that you do, because you you see how when we don't celebrate our autisticness, that it can perpetuate, can't it, those single narratives and those stereotypes. So I want to hear about what has been the best thing about your autistic self-discovery? If you were to celebrate something about yourself, about what it's taught you or what it's shown you or what it's enabled you, I think this is a really a really powerful message to put out there in the world about celebrating the fact that you're autistic. What What is it? What's been the best part of that? The best part of me celebrating my autistic journey is showing that it can be done. I think for so long, people have had this idea of what an autistic person is supposed to be, look like, uh, be able to achieve. And I realised that I have sort of defeated all the odds of what an autistic person is meant to like achieve or do. In terms of what I've been able to achieve and the type of working environment that I've been able to thrive in, like... TV is not for the faint-hearted. It's a very tough gig if you're an autistic person. There is so much going on. There's barely 
any time for people to take much notice or care for people's personal needs. So for me to find a way to navigate uh, my career, to navigate just society at large in terms of who I am and, and the background that I come from and, and so much like in terms of intersectionality to consider in that respect. I am really proud of where I am today and what I've managed to accomplish. And just in terms of, yeah, encouraging other autistic women that you don't have to put yourself in a box. You don't have to be limited. Um, and that this condition will help you to thrive um, more than you can ever imagine or even realise. And I haven't let any of that stop me from doing what I want, achieving what I want, going where I want to go. And now that and now that I'm aware of it, it's just made me even more thankful because it totally could have gone down completely the other way. Um, because yes, you do have your dark days, you do have your down days, but I would say I have more good than bad and I'm super, super grateful for that. Yeah, and celebrating that doesn't obviously dismiss or invalidate the struggles that you have. And I think I do think it's equally as important to talk about some of those struggles. And you've obviously talked about some of the struggles that you experienced growing up as a child. You talked about some of the struggles that you experienced in, in the workplace. What, what is the most challenging part for you about being autistic, being a black autistic woman? Um, oh, I feel like I'm going to cry. Um, I think the most difficult thing for me was uh, thinking about becoming a parent. Um, I've always wanted to like have a massive family um, and lots of children. And I was generally very terrified of becoming a mom and what that meant. And I think to like look on like the net and see examples of like autistic mothers, I think that was like really liberating for me because um, for a long time I didn't feel like I was worthy of being a mother and I thought this is not something I want to pass on to my children even though it's something I feel like I am like I've just managed to kind of get control of and navigate and manage it's not something that I would want my children to have to think about or necessarily have that burden and it sounds bad um for anyone listening to this and it may sound contradictory to think well how can you say that you're you're proud of who you are but not want to pass it on to your children and I think it's because it's been so hard mm. even going through the diagnosis I only feel like now at 29 I can say sort of my late 20s that it's something I've just managed to sort of get a hold of in terms of managing. Um, but before then, it took years of just trying to get to where I am now. And because of that, it you, you do wonder, like, what you wouldn't want your children to then to have to go through that. But, yeah, I realised that one of my autistic traits is a need for perfectionism. And that is not something you can demand from children because children will be children. They will grow up to form whatever habits are laid out in the environment that they grow up in. So I've just had to come to a peace about that and just say that you will grow your children up in the best way that you can. 
whether they inhabit some of your habits that is out of your control, but you just be the best parent that you can be. And when the time comes, if they do pick up some of your autistic traits, that is up to life. It's not up to you. So um, it's kind of spinning that on its head to say that that is something that I found really challenging to accept. Mm -hmm. But now um, I'm really looking forward to that next chapter in my journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason why I'm talking about it now is because I do have a boyfriend and he's really, really keen to sort of get married and start a family sometime in the near future. So yeah, sort of it's kind of the wheels have kind of turned on its head in terms of I was thinking about it one way, but I think when you're with the right person and and he's also super, super supportive of who I am, he's never made a fuss worrying about whether our future children are going to have any autistic traits. It was more me. Uh, it was a personal thing. Um, but now I feel I feel, a, I feel a peace about it now. And it's a really courageous thing to do to talk about what you've just talked about because, you know, motherhood is another is another intersection of all of this, isn't it? This is all about how you feel. This is about individual choice. This is about what you've experienced and this is your story. And just talking through you know, that conflict that you've had and that struggle that you've had to overcome. Thank you for for talking about that. So I also want to talk about with you about your autistic strengths. So we've we've talked a bit about struggles and you've talked very openly about about some of your struggles. Um, So you spent the last 27 years of your life trying to master, um, you know, society's normal and your career as a um, development producer in TV, giving you that escapism that you need. How have you been able to nurture your strengths, incredible strengths through the work that you're doing in TV? I'd say definitely my drive for perfectionism has led to some of like the most like bold and innovative ideas. As a development producer, we're constantly having to churn out ideas Uh, for new briefs, for different broadcasters, for different platforms, and to keep your mind constantly ticking over, especially with like the plethora of content that is available to people, is is very difficult. But I would say that because of that drive for perfectionism, perfectionism in me, I'm constantly striving to look at what's the next big thing, I'm constantly asking all these like weird and wonderful questions, trying to figure out what is it that people want to see, what are the questions that people want answering. And that always keeps me on my toes Mm. and it keeps me pitching ideas that I believe um, people haven't yet either come up with or come up with it from the perspective or the angle that I've come at it with. And I'm extremely grateful that I, I'm in a, a career that helps me to exercise that part of my brain. And it's really fun. It's really intense. Um, and it is a job that will lead to burnout if you don't know how to manage yourself and your well-being. Because one thing I've had to do is find balance. So as well as working in TV, I also make sure I have an outside activity. So I sing in a choir as well. And that just helps me... To, to have that outlet of something that doesn't necessarily 
demand uh, deadlines. I mean, to be honest, choir is quite intense in the sense I still have songs to rehearse. Um, and I actually managed a soprano section in our choir. For, and that's just sort of like an outlet for me to be free. Whereas work is about, okay, you have a deadline and, and you have to sort of meet these requirements. So that's where like the perfection, drive for perfectionism definitely comes out. And I would say perfectionism has been a strength and both a downfall in the sense that sometimes I can set my bar of excellence so high um, and maybe sometimes I don't need to, but it's because I require the very best from myself. Sometimes that can drain me and exhaust me because my bar of excellence is up here and whereas people might be only expecting me to, mm. to be here but I want to always times 10 and that can sometimes lead me to to exhaust myself for no reason at times I love the fact that I'm very literal I see that as a strength because it means that I listen to instructions very clearly and very carefully and my mum always laughs at me because she'll be like oh can you bring me a biscuit so I'll bring her one and she'll be like one but when you ask for one, you ask for a biscuit. If you want two, you should have said two. If you want three, you should have said three. If you want several, I'll probably bring you seven to eight. So I'm very specific. But actually listening to instructions, I, I believe, is um, a strength because it's the difference between getting in trouble, not getting in trouble, staying alive or not being alive. Yeah. And you've talked there, haven't you, about um, your singing. You've talked about putting your headphones on at work and filling your ears with jazz music. So... And this this is this is the thing, isn't it? So certain noises and certain environments um, you have a sensitivity to, but then there's this hyposensitivity to actually seeking out certain sounds, certain noises, jazz music, singing. So it sounds like you you've really started to find out what works for you and what you need. And and I just wonder how you've begun to take off that mask, how how you've found I know you're talking about trying to avoid burnout and being really aware of balance and what you need to do. What adaptations, what adjustments have you had to make in your life following your diagnosis? What, what do you recognise as really important for you? Um, in terms of unmasking, I had to be okay with how sensitive I am. I had to be okay with how forthright and direct I am. For a long time, people used to say, oh, you're too sensitive. So for a long time, I stopped crying publicly. I only used to cry privately so that people didn't see that I was sensitive. For a long time, I tried to, I tried to do this ugly thing of being diplomatic. I can't stand the word. It's a professional lie. <laughs> um, although I do believe in there's a way that you can deliver a message that is less harsh. I don't like to hold back and this is why I say to people if you ask for my opinion like just just be very aware that I'm going to give you my truth if you don't want my truth don't ask for my opinion because I'm just going to give it to you straight and direct there's going to be no fluff there's going to be no filter so I had to unmask all of those things because before that would be labelled as rude or insensitive, all those types of things. And, and it wasn't about hurting anyone's feelings, but it was just about the fact that if you've asked for my opinion and you've asked for honesty, that's exactly what I'm going to give you. So those are, the, those, are the, those are the two main things that I definitely had to unmask on this journey. And then you also asked the second part to that question, didn't you? Yeah, about... Um... 
adaptations, adjustments that, that you've made, um, you know, situations that you find yourself in where you've you've had to make those adaptations and adjustments that you recognize that in order for you to thrive, in order for you to not get to that point of autistic burnout that you've reached several times before, what do I need to do? So these are things that that you're doing. I think the gym has been fundamental in my self-care journey. Uh, the gym has, so I have a personal trainer now, and in terms of having that accountability and an, and an outlet for sometimes frustration, for sometimes just managing my mental health and well-being, that has definitely been um, fundamental in terms of managing particular, just particular emotions. Mm. I feel like we all need our different outlets and, and the gym has been fundamental in that. I would say it's given me confidence to... I think being becoming freelance has become one way of controlling when I work, what type of environments that I work in, and giving me the ability to and confidence to be able to negotiate my work terms and and be and the flexibility that I want in those contracts before if I was sort of told no, you can't work from home or you can't do this, I kind of would have just accepted it, whereas now I just walk away. And it, it's not necessarily always going to financially benefit me, but I know that I would rather be in a place where I'm happy and comfortable with my working environment than just kind of sucking it up and doing it for the money yeah. um, and being really, really unhappy and uncomfortable in that environment. Um, because then I'm not going to be as productive and it's not going to produce the best working attitude for me either. I'm recognizing that you need that level of autonomy and you need that level of of um, control over your environment to make sure that it works for you. I mean, this is coming up in every single conversation that I'm having about um, how we work, how we need to work, environments that we we need to create. So I want to take you back to your childhood and you talked a little bit earlier on about remembering being on the bus being five years old in the playground can you is there a particular experience maybe a childhood experience that you now recognize that is an autistic experience that maybe you didn't recognize before you got your diagnosis that this new knowledge about yourself you were able to look back and think well actually that was an autistic experience and I understand that now yeah, definitely. There's a few. I mean, the one that I can remember distinctively is it was very random. We were all, all, all the children were sort of getting ready to go home. And either my coat or my bag, something must have fell off, you know, the little clothes pegs that you have in school. Something fell on the floor. And I remember there was another boy in my class who accidentally stood on my bag or my coat. And I just remember instantly just like thumping him like it, it's like I didn't even think about it I saw it's it literally as quick as I thumped him was as quick as the the coat or whatever object of mine fell on the floor so it was just like object falls on the floor boy steps on it tc waxing one and that was it and I just remember my teacher just screaming in my face um and even I, I don't know whether I was more surprised by the teacher screaming in my face or the fact that I just whacked someone without even thinking. I didn't even have time to really process what was going on. It was just more about the fact that I was just so upset that this person had put their dirty shoes 
on my belongings and looking back at that experience I knew that the, the instantness in which I reacted to that situation is definitely an autistic response because I didn't even process what had happened there was nothing in my mind that said you know I was only a bit of dirt brush it off or it was an accident it was a you're stepping on my things and your feet are dirty and now I'm angry. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And if you could go back in time then and give a compassionate message to your younger self, thinking about some of these experiences that you've been, you've been talking about, so we've been talking that you're starting to remember um, and frame as autistic experiences, what would you say to yourself? What did you need to hear, TC, growing up as a child? I would love to have had my sensitivity validated and I would lo- I would have loved for younger TC to know that it's okay to be sensitive and that your tears are not a crime. And I would have loved young TC to know that she's not strange or weird and that there are people out there like her. She just needs to find them. She just needs to find her tribe. And... Yeah, there's so many things that I would have loved younger TC to know that one day that, like, you're going to grow up and you will understand certain things about yourself. But for now, just enjoy childhood, enjoy being who you are. I didn't enjoy childhood at school at all. Like, from the ages of four when I entered, well, before then, I would say right from nursery school, from the age of three, right until the age of 11. I hated my entire uh, school experience. Childhood at home was great with my family. Childhood at school was awful. Like it's the the worst, the worst part of my childhood looking back was school. So yeah, I I really would have loved for, um, I would have loved for TC back then to have begged her parents to stay home and do school from home yeah that would have been the thing that would have really made the difference for you yeah I really I really wish young TC would have known how to articulate that and just ask her parents if she could do school at home I wish I'd had the confidence just to ask that question or it it didn't even occur to me that I could ask but I wish I did because I, I just think school was not the best environment for her to thrive at all and Too Autistic for Black was your letter to autism where you addressed your personal experiences of growing up, of navigating your career and relationships and challenging all the powers that be, as well as society at large, to recognise the disparities that Black autistic people face. And you describe it as a monumental career and life-defining milestone. And it doesn't stop there for you, does it? This is really just the beginning for you. So can you tell us a little bit more about the change that you're making TC in the world around autism, what are you advocating for? Where's your future focus? My future focus is to definitely create um, more programming in TV that speaks to uh, autistic lives. So there's definitely more works in development that I would like to work on, that I am currently working on in the pitching stages, because I do think there is more work to be done around our narratives, around our experiences, because I always say uh, just people in general from different communities, whether you're from an Asian background, 
uh, African Caribbean background, Scottish background, wherever, uh, you know, we're not a monolith and we have to allow for different stories to be told. And I think at the moment with autism, because we're so used to one narrative being told, people just have a, a, a fixed a fixed idea or ideal of what autism is and what it looks like. So for me at the moment, even people finding out that I'm autistic, it's the usual reaction of you don't look autistic. And it really grates me because I meet autistic people all the time who are coming from different walks of life, different stories, and they all look totally different. So it's it's really weird to me that well in 2023 people are still walking around with their fixed ideal of what autism is meant to look like and I think one of the most powerful mediums that we can use to sort of break those stereotypes is through storytelling whether that be through podcasting like you're doing through tv through film through books these are all powerful mediums to create new narratives or to explore narratives that people may have never thought about before. So I do believe that in my gift, in my calling of storytelling of, of TV and even in books, that's something that I want to continue to advocate for um, and not just from uh, the Black British perspective or the Jamaican British perspective, but from different perspectives, I have so many different ideas and plans of how I want to tackle this. So, yeah, watch this space. Wow, it sounds incredible. And finally, our final question for you today is what more you think needs to be done? So you're obviously leading this work. You have all of these um, amazing, incredible ideas about what you want to do. But I want you to put a call to action out to anybody who's listening to this podcast today. What would your call to action be to anybody who's listening, TC? My call to action would be is that even if you don't feel believed or you don't feel supported, but you feel that getting a diagnosis is the best way to understand yourself and make sense of your world, I would definitely encourage you to go in and seek that out by contacting your GP or looking online and seeing how you can start that process. Um, it's not about anybody else. Other people understanding you is secondary, but the most important person that needs to understand and make sense of you is you. And once you can do that, there's so much satisfaction and relief that comes from that. And I, I do think that a lot of people get stuck in in not knowing in in probably being aware of the fact that they may have autistic traits um but not necessarily feeling confident to be able to go for that diagnosis so my call to action is for people to feel empowered to to get that support and to seek out to seek out help you owe that to yourself and it's really important um my second call to action is for researchers because you're just as important in that narrative. The fact that there are hardly any studies or research done uh, for autistic women as a whole. I mean, I think I've uh, read some kind of, um, I don't think it was an actual stat, but it was just more an article talking about, you know, young um, Caucasian uh, girls going underdiagnosed. So I thought, well, if, if they're falling down the priority list in terms of, um, autistic research but anyone else on the spectrum who is female 
um, whether that be from African Caribbean communities, Asian minority ethnic groups, do not stand a chance. Um, so it, it, it really is bad that in 2023, there is a lack of research to account for autistic girls and women's experiences. So my call to action is for researchers to do better. You have entire, like you have an entire like autistic research institution set up in the UK. People are being paid to do this. Like why, why are you still not taking our stories and experiences into account? Like what are you doing? What are you getting paid for? It doesn't make any sense to me anymore. And then also, I think the best way to tackle anything in this world is through policy and procedure. Anything is going to, only, things only really get taken seriously and changed when it's law. So for me, when it comes to like the Equality Act or sort of like regulations and procedures in workplaces, I really do think we need to review, review uh, workplace practices that really uh, look at the needs of uh, neurodiversity because expecting people to come into a working environment and function the same and act the same, um, it's not going to work in 2023, especially since we've had COVID because people have, some people have realised the pure joy of being able to control their own working environment. And I know eventually workplaces are going to want people to return to the office, but in order for, for them to do that, they're going to need to consider what work practices they have in place to cater for different people's needs. Yeah, so three very big call to actions there um, for anybody listening. And if anybody is listening to you see, and they resonate they connect with the story that you've been telling and and you know empowering people who have been listening today how can they get in touch with you how can they reach out to you so i'm on uh twitter and instagram at this is tc so that's t double you can also find me on my website so that's www.tcofficial.com and yeah, feel free to hit me up on any of those platforms or my email is tc at tcofficial.com. Okay, we'll put all the links. All the links are in the episode description so you can click on those. So thank you, TC. Thank you for coming on today and letting us shine a light on your late discovery story and empowering other people with the words and what you're doing and the change that you're making in the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed being a guest.